read from Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am uh, one of the pastors here. I feel like as I start, I should apologize to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, they are, you know, the very last part of this passage, really interesting part of the passage that I will not be able to touch. There's so much in the first part, but I encourage you to keep kind of maybe over the week looking at it because I think these two people exemplify what we're about to consider as we look at uh, these verses. Uh, but before we go any further, would you please join with me in a prayer? Father, we, uh, we stand in your grace. We stand here as your people, uh, knowing that you have promised to be with us and that you are speaking to us even now. And not only are you speaking to us, but your spirit is here with us, helping us to listen. And so we pray for you to do that even more, to help me as I speak, to guide us in such a way that we're actually hearing you better and for your spirit to guide all of us in such a way that we are being changed by you so that more and more we can be your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So there is this well-known preacher from the 20th century, a guy by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was kind of a celebrity preacher in England. Think of him as kind of maybe like the Tim Keller or John Piper of his day. But you would have, you know, people traveling to London just to hear this one guy preach. And so there's this story of this one person who came because he wanted to hear the great David Martin Lloyd-Jones with his deep voice and his passion and all of that. And he was struck by his preaching and he was looking forward to meeting him after. So, you know, as is often the case with more traditional churches, you have like the pastor at the very back shaking everyone's hand and he was looking forward to meeting this one guy. And what he was struck by as he was drawing near and he was hearing Martin Lloyd-Jones speak was how he would just say the same thing again and again and again. To every person, he would just say, keep going, keep going, keep going. That, that was all he would say, keep going, as if this is the one thing that his church needed to hear more than anything else. Don't give up, don't slow down, just keep going. And I want to suggest that that actually is really what our passage is saying to us this morning. It's what Paul was saying to the Philippians, and God, through this word which is living and active, is saying to us as well. If you've closed your bulletins, it'd probably be good to keep them open because we're going to be going right through the passage. And, and if you look, you'll notice right at the very beginning, as he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So he's speaking to people who are already doing something. This is his beloved Philippian friends, people who have obeyed, who have followed Christ. As you have obeyed, both in my absence, more in my presence, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As you have done this, Keep going. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, now what does that mean, work out your salvation, when he's saying keep going? Well, it, it, it basically is what it sounds like. That word work out is the idea of, of effort. Um, one person translated it as the idea of there's being continuous, ongoing, strenuous efforts towards a specific goal. And so what Paul is saying is, as you have experienced salvation, allow it to permeate you so that it is changing every aspect. Strive towards this. Push towards Christian maturity. Why do I say Christian maturity? Well, if you look at the goal that he's saying that you're supposed to work for, work out from being saved, working it outwards, well, if you follow the logic, it's clear in verse 15 what that goal is. After he's saying, doing things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. So when he's saying work, work out the fact that you're saved, this is the goal that you are pursuing. The idea of blameless doesn't mean without fault and perfect. It's, it's the idea of being beyond reproach, being the real deal. So sometimes maybe we know of people who kind of curate their public image. They, they try to look like they're really presentable, but those who know them really well realize that that's not who they are. But then sometimes you might know of someone who's just exactly how they present themselves to be, that they are genuinely decent people. And that's what this word is implying, what it's talking about. So in the Old Testament, Job is described as blameless. In the New Testament, uh, we have Elizabeth and Zechariah are given the same word. It's, It's people who are beyond reproach, who are truly what they present themselves as. And similarly, that word innocent can be translated pure. It's, it's meaning authentic, genuine. It goes down deep and not just surfacy. It's without hypocrisy. 
And finally, that other phrase of children of God without blemish. Well, that one is an allusion to the Old Testament. When Paul speaks of, sorry, in Deuteronomy, Paul is connecting us to this passage in Deuteronomy where God says to his people, watch out so that you are not so blemished that you lose your identity as children of God. And the idea is don't don't become so compromised by idolatry that you fail to be the people that you have been created to be. So when you put all of this together, this idea of being genuine, true children of God, not compromised by idolatry, wholehearted allegiance to Christ, what he is talking about is simply Christian maturity. He's saying, work out your salvation. He's saying, something has happened to you. You have been saved. A new person has been created within you. Really, that person that you are always created to be is now a part of who you are. And you need to allow that to change every aspect of yourself. I've used this illustration before, but you know in the movie The Beauty and the Beast, at the very end, and I apologize if this is a spoiler for people, but at the very end, this kiss that transforms the beast, suddenly he's a human being again, but that's not where it stops. It starts there, but then the castle changes and it's beautiful. You know, the clock and the candle become people. Slowly, what has happened starts moving its way out so that everything is transformed, right? And the same way Paul's saying, just as you have been saved and something has begun, allow it to change every aspect of you. And what's striking is he's saying there's actually work involved in that. That you are called to do something, to work hard, to to pursue knowing Christ, to pursue repentance, to see where Jesus is calling you to be and, and to make changes even when they're hard, to work. And he's not just speaking about that individually. I mean, he's speaking to an entire church. Strive as the people of God to become mature. Some of you were at the women's retreat last week, and and you know how Paul in Ephesians speaks of how we all are work together, speaking the truth in love so that we can become mature, Christ-like. And that's what he's saying here. Let yourself more and more be that saved people of God. Strive. Work hard. Now, now we Protestants, I think, struggle sometimes with this language of effort. Because, you know, one of the great, great truths of the Reformation is that you and I, we are loved by God, we are saved by him, apart from anything we have done, right? We are saved by grace. Jesus died for you before you did anything to earn it because you can't possibly earn it. You receive it just by faith. And that is something that we need to know and be changed by, but we cannot allow that to then teach us that that means there's no place for effort. Because the reality is, once we understand that we have been saved, once we understand what God has done to us, then that has given us more reason than ever before to work, to strive, to do everything we can to let every aspect of ourselves be changed and shaped by Christ Jesus. Why do I say that? Why why do I say that we have more reason than ever before to work out our salvation? Well, this passage actually not only calls us to do this, but I think it gives us four really clear motivations of why we should dedicate ourselves, why we should sweat, why we should work hard to let ourselves become the mature people of God. Four motivations. The first one that I think we see 
is the motivation having to do with seeing things through the perspective of the very end. There was a time, um, maybe it was about two decades ago, where it just seemed like, maybe you remember in the 80s, where the Japanese automakers suddenly seemed to just kind of like take over. It was just, you know, it seemed like America's cars were just not keeping up with Japan. And I remember hearing around that time someone say, you know, American car makers look at the next fiscal quarter of the year. Japanese car makers look at the next quarter of a century. Now, I have no idea if that's true or not. But it's a, it, I think it raises an important point that there is a significance of looking beyond just the immediate, right? I mean, we see that in our lives. How often do you feel like you are just running from one thing to another? You've got a deadline after a deadline. You've got one kid's appointment after another kid's appointment. You have this thing and that thing. And it's so easy to just be so focused on that and never have our heads looking beyond that, moving from one goal to the next. But the problem is, as long as we're doing that, we're not really ever getting anywhere. I mean, it's important for us to look beyond these one thing after the other and say, where am I going? Where is my life going? What am I doing? Where is my goal? And what Paul does is he says, for you to really be able to see that clearly, you need to look at the very end. You need to be looking at the day of Christ Jesus. Maybe you noticed that at the very beginning of our passage, Paul says, therefore, and you know, the old adage, whenever you see it, therefore, you have to know what it's there for is is true here. Like he is clearly saying the things that I'm telling you when I'm giving you this command to keep going, to work out your salvation is because of what I have just told you. If you were here with us last week, you might remember what he just told them. The very end of our passage, Paul says, there's going to come a day when every knee is going to bow to Jesus. I mean, just imagine that for a moment. When Jesus comes and his glory is so obvious that everyone sees and his majesty is apparent, and everyone, every celebrity on the TV screen, every, every political figure, everyone in power, everyone will be bowing their knee. And every tongue, it says, will confess. Whether, whether they want to or not, they will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Some will say this with joy and praise as they have longed to see Jesus and now they see him face to face. Others will say this in terror, realizing their whole life was built against this and was in a lie and now they are in trouble. But everyone, one day, will bow their knee and confess that Jesus is the King. That's where Paul just said, and now he says, therefore, knowing that this day is before you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, in light of the end, here's how you should live. And if you read Paul, you know, if you read the New Testament, you see Paul is constantly aware of, constantly looking through today through the lens, sorry, looking at today through the lens of that last day. I mean, we see it not just throughout Paul's writings, we see it in Philippians. The very first time when Paul is praying in chapter one for the Philippian church, he prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. He's praying for them because he's already thinking about that last day. In chapter three, as we'll see, he, he speaks of his testimony and and why he's living. And he's saying, our citizenship is in heaven and from it 
we await Jesus who will transform our bodies to be like his glorious body. Here's what's driving me. We are waiting for Jesus. He is focused on that day. And we see that here, don't we, in, in the very passage when, when Paul says in verse 16, holding fast to the, uh, you know, do these things, holding fast to the word of life, so that, what, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do you see what he's doing? He's focusing them on that last day. He's saying, run in such a way so that on that last day, when I am looking back, I can go, it was all worth it. Consider right now, not just in terms of right now, but in terms of the last day. Let me invite you just for a moment to try to lift your head above the water with me. And, and just to try to imagine being there in that moment. I know this is really hard because there's so much mystery about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns, right? Maybe you will be rising from the grave, or, or maybe you will be here when Jesus returns. We don't know when he comes, but imagine just being conscious in that moment as everyone is bowing and every tongue is confessing, and it's clear that Jesus is the king and he has finished his work. And think back from the perspective of that moment on your life right now. How do you think you will see it? As you are right there in that moment when everything has been revealed and all is clear, how will you look at the life that you lived here right now today? You know, we right now, you know, like one of the questions we're always asking ourselves is, am I doing okay? Am I living okay? And we have kind of in this world different scorekeepers that we use to try to keep track. Some of them are status symbols, you know. If I have the, the nice car, the nice clothes, the nice house, that shows that I'm doing okay. Some of it can be stuff like how many likes I have on Facebook or, or how many friends that I have. How many times am I allowed in the inner circle? Are my kids going to the nice college? What is on my business card for my title? We have all sorts of different scorekeepers to help us feel like we are doing something well. But look not through the perspective of these scorekeepers, but from the perspective of the last day when everything actually becomes plain. How will all of these things look to you? You know, elsewhere Paul writes, and this is him writing to the Corinthian church, that on the last day, not only who we are, but the work that we have done will be tested. He said, tested as if by fire. And he warns that for some of us, though we are saved through Christ, all of the work that we have done, all of the energy we have spent will be burned up in flames. In other words, it will be exposed, recognizing that everything we did was just spent on nonsense. How do we see things differently when we look through the perspective of the last day? What if we are on that last day when we look backwards will we say, this was worth it? And Paul gives the answer right here. Therefore, he says, in light of that last day, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Pursue Christian maturity, both as an individual, as a church, because you will know on the last day that was worth it. That was what you should have invested your life in. We are to work out our salvation in light of the last day. That's one motivation we have here. Another motivation for why we should be working out our salvation is that God is with us. Honestly, this 
part of the passage that I'm seeing, I, I didn't fully see until I was, I, I meet with a high school group every couple of weeks and we were studying Philippians, and actually one of the kids said this, I was like, oh my goodness, you're absolutely right. What Paul is doing here in a couple of these verses is he is connecting us to the Old Testament people of God who are in the wilderness. So you might have already seen one hint. I, I talked about how in Deuteronomy, one of these, you know, when it talks about children of God without blemish, that's an allusion to God speaking to the people of God right before they enter the promised land, and it's a warning there. And that's not the only connection point. He also says, do everything without grumbling or disputing. And again, that's a connection back to the people of God in the Old Testament, mistakes that they made. Here's what's going on. So in the Old Testament, God's people, if you want to say, how did they experience salvation? It goes back to just one clear point. When they were in Egypt, when they were enslaved, God rescued them. We know the story, 10 plagues, bringing them out of slavery, bringing them through the Red Sea, and they come to the other side and they have been saved. They have been rescued. They have seen the Lord's salvation. But they're not yet in Canaan. And so their calling is to keep going, to let God be at work in them, to let God take them into the promised land. And so you have this journey where they have, you know, a stop at Mount Sinai and then they keep going and they get to the promised land where God is going to bring them into their salvation. And what happens? They send a dozen spies and they come back and says, yes, this land is glorious. But 10 of them say, there's no way we're going to take it because there's a huge army. And how in the world can we do this? And what happens next? The people of God start complaining. They start grumbling. They start arguing with Moses. They start saying, why did you bring us to this point? Because there's no way we can do this. Now, their fundamental mistake when they get there is they forgot that God was with them. If they really could understand what it meant that the creator of the universe was in their midst, that he was the one who was going to complete this work, they would not be coming into this land with complaining and arguing. They would have been entering in with fear and trembling. Why? Because God was in their midst. And if they had had fear of God, they would have feared nothing else. But because instead they responded with complaining, they failed to enter the land. And Paul is making the comparison, and he says, this is you. You have experienced God's salvation. You have been rescued out of slavery. You have been brought not just through the Red Sea, but through death, through Jesus' death and resurrection. But you're out of Egypt, but you're not yet in Canaan. We are in the wilderness And so we are called to keep allowing God to do his work of salvation. And it's hard when he calls us to follow Christ through suffering, through being opposed by people. It's hard when he calls us to repent and there are things that we have to let go that feel scary to let go of. And in the middle of the hardness, we might be tempted to just complain, to say, I don't want this. We might be tempted as a church, as we're trying more and more to grow, to say, this is tiring, this is hard, I don't want this. But Paul says, don't do this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do do you see what he is saying? Whenever we are seeking 
to live our lives more fully under Christ's rule. Whenever we are seeking to grow in maturity, God is guaranteeing that it is never going to be in vain. I mean, that's the difficulty, isn't it, right? That, that sometimes we feel, okay, I want to be growing in prayer, but it's kind of hard for me to even start because I know I'm just going to fail. Or there might be this awareness of, of God is calling me to, to make this change in my life, but I'm not sure that I'm up for it. And what Paul is saying is you don't get it. God is in your midst. As you are seeking to take these steps, you are stepping onto holy ground. Because what is God doing? He is willing and working within you. He is giving you the desire. He is giving you the ability. He is guiding you. As we step forward, as hard as it looks, we will find the power of God because God is at work in us. So this is the second motivation for Christian maturity. There is not failure as we seek to be faithful to God because God's the one who is enabling us to enter in to that maturity that we long for. So there is this awareness of the end that motivates us to strive and to work hard. There is this fact that God is at work, which means we're not going to fail as we strive and work hard, not ultimately. And then there's a third motivation we see in this passage, and that is we need to strive hard to grow in this way because the world needs it. Verses 15 and 16 talk about how we need to be these children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world we're in, he says, is is crooked and twisted and in darkness. That maybe sounds harsh until we start really thinking about it. And seeing the different signals and signs that there is a lot of darkness. Just a few days ago, perhaps you might know about this, uh, in Hinsdale, Hinsdale, you know, Mayberry, there was a murder. And people are like, what just happened here? This is not supposed to happen, but, but we're in a world that's, that's twisted. We, we see occasional suicides and we wonder what took place there, but it's not just those moments. Those are just like the loud shouts of the deeper reality of people being lost and confused and, and hopeless. We're in darkness and this world needs light. And so what does Paul describe us as? He says that we are to shine as lights in the world. And once more we have him quoting the Old Testament. There is this place in Daniel chapter 12 that talks about the people who are wise, shining like lights, turning people to righteousness. And he's saying, that's you. We are people who hold forth the gospel. We are people who are given the very wisdom of God And it is as we shine that we draw people into righteousness, out of the crookedness, into what is straight. But what's important for you to recognize is the way that we draw people is not just through the words that we say. We are definitely holding forth the gospel. But it's in who we are, that we are children without blemish. Because it's our lives that draw people in. There's this... One theologian who recently wrote that the true apology of Christian faith, the most convincing demonstration of its truth against every denial, are the saints 
and the beauty that the faith has generated. Let me just say that again. The true apology of Christian faith, that is, the way that it convinces people, the most convincing demonstration of the truth of the gospel against every denial are the saints and the beauty that the faith has generated. Isn't that true when you think about it? What is it that draws you to the gospel? It's, it's the beauty of the lives of those who've been changed by Jesus. It's the beauty of Christian community. It's, it's the evidence of something that's of substance here. That's what causes us to want to grow and to learn. I mean, Jesus himself says that, doesn't he? He says he prays that we might be one so that the world might know that he was sent by God. The way that the world needs us to be is we need to be the mature people of God because that's how we shine like lights in the world. And here's what this means. We look at this world and we feel frustrated. We look at things politically and we want to maybe vote differently or, or encourage people to do things differently, and that's fine, but that's not the most important thing that you can do. We look at all of the need and we want to give Give to where there's poverty, and that is great and good, but that is not the most important thing for you to do. The most important thing for you to do for this world is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's for us to be the community of God being more and more transformed by Jesus because as we are his beautiful saints, then we're shining like lights, inviting people to experience the joy of Christ in a way that actually draws them in. Our first responsibility, more than anything else, is to be the people that God has called us to be. We, we are to work out our salvation because the world needs it. And there's one more motivation that we, we don't have a ton of time for, but I just want to briefly mention it. Not only do we do this because we see it through the light of the end, not only do we do this because we know God is at work with us, not only do we do this because we know that the world needs it, but we do this because we love God. One more piece where we have an Old Testament connection, verse 17. Perhaps you found this a little bit confusing. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What is he talking about here? Well, in the Old Testament, when you were wanting to show your gratitude and your love for God, often what that would take the form of is as a sacrifice. Sometimes it might be grain. If you were a farmer, you might put grain on the altar and burn it, or it might be an animal. And symbolically, what you were doing was you were giving a gift to God. And in some ways, even more deeply, it symbolized that you were giving yourself. And this was a way of expressing you giving yourself. And, and sometimes, along with the, the animal or with the grain, you would take some of your finest wine and pour it out on that altar as a sign of just dedication, of, of, of kind of this extravagance of a gift to God. And Paul's using that language here, isn't he? He is saying, I am quite happy if I am giving my life as this, this drink offering that accompanies what you are doing. But notice how he characterizes what, what we as a church are doing. If we are living out our calling, it is a sacrifice. It is worship. It is a way of us showing our love towards God. So when you are in nursery and you are holding one crying baby while another one is at your feet, or when you are waking up early on Sunday morning for setup, 
or when you are having a really hard conversation with someone in the church because you are convinced that it's important to maintain unity, you're not just doing this for the sake of the church. You're not just doing this for your own well-being or because it's your duty. This is a way of showing that you love God. Everything that we're doing towards helping us as a church and us growing individually is something that is like one beautiful drawing that a kid makes. Like if you have like a five-year-old and he makes this color drawing and he gives it to you and you put it on the refrigerator, that's what we are doing together. It is one gift, one sacrifice that even though it is meager, is an offering that God delights in. We, we work not just for our own sakes, but because it is a way of showing God that we love him. Our passage is saying really something simple. It's saying, keep going. And and to me, that seems like a really appropriate thing for us as a church. Because when I look at you, I see people who are striving people who are sacrificing for some of the things that I've talked about, whether it's nursery or working in community groups. This is a church that God has blessed and God is working through. And God is saying to you, yes, this might be tiring, and it is. Yes, this might be hard. But in the last day, when you look back, you will rejoice. Even now, as you're stepping forward, you will not be in failure because I am with you. What you are doing is what the world needs. And this is a gift to me. So keep going. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I like to to give us a chance, as we always do, having just kind of heard God's word, to respond in confession. Because even as we are told to work, we are confronted with areas where we have been afraid to give ourselves fully to Christ. So kind of as a response, I invite you to use this time to do that work of seeking to bring everything under Christ's rule. And what we'll do is I'll uh, start and then wherever it's bold, if we could confess together, and then we'll have a time for silent confession right in the middle of this time. So would you please pray with me? Most merciful God, We humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way. We have done wrong, and we have failed to do what is right. And you alone can save us. Have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin.
Thanks be to God.